0: Design Matters is on summer break and will return with new interviews this fall. In the meantime, we're replaying some archival episodes. This one with Deborah Cass is from November, 2017. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Milman talks with artist Deborah Cass.
1: My whole middle brow attachment to middle class entertainment is to me one of the more radical things I do in art.
0: Here's Debbie Milman.
2: Brooklyn recently got its yo back. Or is it oi? I'm not sure. In any case, I'm talking about Deborah Cass's sculpture of two giant yellow letters, Y and O. Depending on which direction you're coming from or your mood, you can read it as yo or you can read it as Oi. It was originally on display in Brooklyn Bridge Park, and now it's back in Brooklyn on the waterfront in Williamsburg. Deborah Cass is a multimedia artist who combines a pop sensibility with with politics, feminism, and art history. Her work is fun, funny, eclectic, and deep. And she's here today to talk about her long and extraordinary career. Deborah Cass, yo! Or should I say, (laughs) oi, and welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Deb, I need to start by asking you a rather trivial, but potentially polarizing question. I understand you can't live without Bounty paper towels.
1: That's true. Where do you get your information?
2: Oh, I have my sources and I don't ever give them away.
1: I mean, that's really funny. (laughs) (laughs) But really,
2: Bounty? I like Viva much better. Really? Oh, Bounty's a quicker picker-upper. I don't know. And this is not a sponsored podcast. No, it's not. So nobody has to worry about our being authentic.
1: No, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know. I think I inherited from my grandmother. She had really particular tastes in paper products.
2: Now, do you keep a lot of paper products around? Yes. See, I'm a person that has a lot of paper products in storage. I just feel safer when I have a large quantity of paper products around me.
1: I completely concur because it ends up we have a lot in common, including (laughs) a need for a big backup on the paper products. I'm never happy unless I see that really well stocked shelf.
2: Yep. I hear you. Yep. You were born in San Antonio, Texas, but you grew up on Long Island. Yes. What caused, what motivated that move to the East Coast?
1: Um, Well, my parents were from the Bronx and Queens. My grandparents were three out of four from Russia, well, the Ukraine and Belarus, and they were New York Jewish immigrants, and my father just did two years in the Air Force in Lackland in Sa- San Antonio.
2: Oh, okay. So they
1: were just coming home. So you, yeah,
2: they were coming. You were and coming you know, home?
1: like that that generation, they the, the next move was into the suburbs.
2: Right. I, I was there as well. Your mother was a substitute teacher in the Rockville Center Public Schools, and your father was a dentist, but he was also a jazz aficionado and an amateur musician. And I read that in your house, there was only one kind of great art, and it was jazz. And you and your dad would listen to how Charlie Parker and Coltrane or Billie Holiday could all perform the same tune, but differently. And this led you to thinking that interpretation was completely within the realm of a great artist. And do you think that this was only relegated to music? Or did you think it could apply to other art forms as well back then?
1: I only knew one kind of great art, and it was music, because my father said so. And that's what the sort of literature of the house was. And although my mother read a lot, of literature, <laughs> so aside from that, um, but uh, it was a very active passion for my father, and it was a very involving uh, atmosphere, and um, I didn't really know that it applied to anything I did till about 1999, when I I had a traveling show that originated at the Newcomb Museum there. The Warhol Project started in New Orleans, the show. And um, it was because I had to give a talk to, you know, like the trustees of the big opening and I had to prepare some remarks. And it never really occurred to me that I had in any way assimilated that point of view, except there I was in New Orleans, which in my family was like Mecca. Mecca. And there I was having done all this Andy Warhol work, this work that looked just like Andy Warhol's, and I realized that I had been doing exactly what my father had been pointing out these great musicians had done, which was taking a pop standard and named Andy Warhol and making it mine, doing it my way. So I never realized that I had made this connection between art and music or interpretive art versus creative art or but to me it was all the same thing and I didn't realize I had any connection to it till I had to give this talk and it was like the light bulb went off
2: was there ever a time in your life where you thought you might want to be a musician or a performer
1: no i did have a fl- i did have a little acting flirtation in my teens but Didn't we all? <laughs> I it, – I, it was really – yeah, I guess we did. But I, I got the real bug because someone I knew from summer camp became – like was in a Broadway show when she was about 16 in the chorus of Henry, Sweet Henry. Wow. And Eileen Schatz was in the chorus. And it just blew my circuits. And um, she ended up being a really – I guess famous soap opera actress Eileen Christen, but Eileen Schatz inspired me, and I, but I was very taken with this fact that someone I knew was doing something professional like that. But I um, started going to theater a lot, and what I would do was, I would take the Long Island Railroad in on Saturday mornings and go to the Art Students League. I was started at like fourteen, and draw from the model, and then in the afternoon I'd. Uh, I, I would, if you know, with baby. This was all with babysitting money, and none of this was supported. I mean, my generations, your gen, our, our parents weren't interested in creative children. They just said, you know, turn off the light and go to sleep. They didn't care that I was interesting, which I was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, if I had me as a kid, I'd be fascinated. But um, I would go do this theater thing in the afternoon on Broadway, but I quickly spread out to off Broadway because I was sort of a little snotty intellectual, so you know, I mean i I actually went through my calendar from a few of those years. I'm still very close to my best friend from the time. and um at her surprise sixtieth birthday party, I gave a list of all the things we did, all the all the sh- art we saw together and all the shows we wow, saw together. That's amazing, and it was fantastic. It was like the living theater. Paradise Lost. I mean, it was crazy. It was Nicole Williamson and Hamlet. It was like an unbelievably rich, rich. So I did have a little acting Jones for a while.
2: You knew that you wanted to be an artist or certainly had artistic talent pretty early. From what I understand, fairly early in your life, you received a letter from Peanuts cartoonist Charles Schultz and. He was actually responding to a letter that you wrote to him. And before I share the contents of his letter to you with our listeners, what did you write him to motivate his response to you?
1: Well, I sent him drawings. And What did you draw? I drew a comic strip so unusual for me based on his. <laughs> <laughs>
2: now, why am I not surprised?
1: <laughs> and I had a, my own comic strip with little kids called Applesauce based on Peanuts. And I had found my first Peanuts book at A&S, Abraham and Strauss Department Store in Amstead. I remember, uh, you know, there was like a pile of these books. I must have been eight years old, maybe nine. I don't think I was nine. But then I started collecting the books. And I was completely obsessed and I copied them endlessly. I, you know, I perfected Lucy and and then I went on and did my own based on them. So I sent him a bunch of drawings and that's all I know. I I don't know what I said. I don't know what I wrote. I just know he responded. And it went back and forth a few times. I have quite a few.
2: Oh, so you have a whole correspondence. Yeah, I do.
1: I have like six, about six. Letters from him,
2: and did you ever correspond with him when you were older and an adult? No. One
1: of the things I said to him, I couldn't find. Go fly a kite, Charlie Brown, when it came out, and I knew it came out somehow. I don't. I was very exteriorly motivated. I still am. Like the world was of enormous interest to me as a kid, and uh, you know, it wasn't. Uh, I'm I'm not like an internal artist who has like churning emotions that have to get out. I never was. So even as a little kid, I was very interested in the world. And um, this I, somehow I knew this book had come out and it wasn't at A&S yet. I mean, I'm sure I bothered my mother endlessly to take me there. So I sent Charles Schultz a dollar for the book because that's what they were. And he sent me back the book. He kept the dollar and he sent me back the book and he drew me a Snoopy. <sighs> Please the, tell me
2: you still have this. Oh,
1: I, I have it framed. And it's, you know, I... Pulled the page out and it's framed. It's like brown now, and it says, uh, "I should know what it says." I look at it all like to Debbie, best wishes with Snoopy. In a blue ballpoint pen, it's so great. That's
2: amazing. Well, his letter back to your first letter to him was, Dear Debbie, thank you for your letter and cartoons. I enjoyed seeing your drawings, and I think you did very well with them. It is very nice of your teacher to display your drawings as she does. If you enjoy drawing cartoons, I would suggest that you keep at it. You can never tell what it may develop into. Kindest regards, Charles M. Schultz.
1: I know, so dear. And I did only write him one more time. When he was dying, there was something about, you know, if you wanna write to Charles Schultz, do it now. You know, there was some way to email him regards. Right. And I quoted that to him. And I said, I don't know if you remember but you know, I'm an artist in New York, and you know I've made my life this way. And when I was a kid, you know, you wrote this incredibly encouraging thing and told me to keep at it, keep at it, because you never you can know never tell what would develop into. I said, and I took your advice.
2: Wonderful. Yeah. Now, in addition to sneaking out of your art students' league's classes to going to Broadway plays. I was not sneaking out. They were done
1: at 12. Okay. (laughs) I wouldn't sneak out. I paid for them. Okay. And I wanted to be in them.
2: Well, you also would go to MoMA. Yes. And that is where, while still in high school, you first saw the work of Frank Stella. Mm. And I know that that was a really profound experience for you. Can you talk a little bit about that first experience?
1: Yeah. And I used to just really haunt, I haunted MoMA to try to figure out what this was this thing i wanted to do even though i don't know why i wanted to do it i don't know where i got the idea and i certainly didn't know anyone else who these were doctors lawyers and manufacturers that's what dad's did mom's taught you know i don't know where this came from so um i was really on a search for a mission to find out what what it what is this thing what is an art what is art and what's being an artist and um, and I would look at this work all around and I didn't really get a lot of it. I remember the first person I actually I I loved de Kooning. I think most people who end up painters probably fell in love with de Kooning as a kid in some way. I remember. Why do you think that is? Gushy paint, mm. just gushy paint. So. Beautifully, fabulous, gushy paint.
2: Now, I, I read that seeing Frank Stella's work convinced you you could be an artist because well, you understood what he was doing. Right.
1: The thing that was so great about it was Stella's um, first retrospective. I was 17. He was 44. It was whatever year that was, 70, 69, 70. And it was the logic of Frank Stella that I understood. I understood how he got from that very first painting. To the second painting like what was going on in his head you just you just felt no, it, it was, I think it's clear in the work it's very logical <laughs> it's logical work and you know how the jumps between the series were what utterly fascinated me because they seemed completely logical but they were obviously intensely they're creative jumps. you know they're like not what you expect. They make sense. So it was being able to follow someone for 20 years of changes in their work and how their work changed. And and it was more in my head than it was emotional. It It sounds like figuring
2: out a code. Yeah,
1: like that. I understood his thinking. And I understood the relationship of the form to the content, that the form was the content. And that was just like... That was kind of a big deal.
2: (laughs) And did it give you a sense that you could do this with your life as well?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I was already committed. I was already – probably already gotten into Carnegie Mellon. No, I knew I was going to be an artist. But it was the first time I understood motivation within a body of work.
2: While you uh, were at Carnegie, you also applied and were accepted to the Whitney Museum's independent study program, which was only about four to five years old at the time. I actually applied and didn't get in. Mm -hmm. So what was it like going there? My father had just died.
1: So I was in a completely altered state because it was unexpected. And he was only 47. So so it was a very weird time. And I'm not sure I could describe... Much other than, you know, I was kind of on another planet. I was living in the studio there. I'd every now and then go home. It was a a real shock what my father died. So, um, but it was fun. I mean, it was fun to be with really ambitious
2: people my age. Um, it was at this time that you made one of your first paintings. Your first, I guess, would I could it, would it be fair to call it appropriated paintings?
1: Yeah, I guess after applesauce, my appropriation of Charles Schultz. Yes. this would be my next major appropriation. So
2: Ophelia's death after Delacroix. Can yes. you describe it for our listeners?
1: Yeah, it's a it's actually a very large rendition of a small sketch, oil sketch by Delacroix. Called o- Ophelia's Death. I think his was like you know eight by ten inches, you know, or a very small little thing, and mine was maybe five feet by seven, six by eight. Oh, six <laughs> by eight, even bigger. Uh, and it was a it was a redo of this painting, and you know, I just repainted it.
2: Deb, you've written about how David Diao, the Chinese-American artist, and your teacher saw the show of student work at the Whitney and was so freaked out about your painting that he literally hit his head against the wall. (laughs) Why was he so freaked out about your work?
1: I don't know. And, you know, I was really young. I was 20. I didn't know what it meant. Listen, I still don't know what it means when people react to my work. (laughs) But I certainly didn't understand what it meant then. And I never asked him. I wouldn't have had the the nerve to ask him.
2: Your time at school was... rather um, interesting, I guess is the word I could put it, and I found um, an interview uh, wherein you described your time there as total chaos and actually said this. This is a quote. This is how crazy it was. Here's an actual assignment. Our teacher got video cameras and said, we're going to hitchhike to Lexington. One of our coolest teachers, the one who had studied with Capro, was then in Lexington. We were stoned. We were tripping. We had (laughs) video cameras. We went from Pittsburgh to Lexington with our thumbs out on the road a lot of those students would transfer to Cal Arts. a few people went to Denmark to do primal therapy this was undergraduate school I did a ton of acid smoked a lot of pot I was such a bad girl and oh I had the best time
1: it, that is um, all true <laughs> it really was I was out there and I had a ball
2: it sounds like it was kind of perfect
1: I have to say and I was madly in love I was madly in love, so I feel like I had the world's best first love affair, the world's maybe not best story education, but for, you know, somebody dying to break out of Long Island and being a nice Jewish girl, I did it in spades and I had a ball and it was something else.
2: You started your art history paintings in 1989, and in this work, you combined frames lifted from Disney cartoons with segments of paintings from Pablo Picasso and Jasper Johns and Jackson Pollock. And it was here that you established appropriation as one of your primary techniques. What Mm. what gave you the sense that this was something you wanted to pursue?
1: I think to answer that question, I should establish a little context, which was In the 70s, when I first came to New York, after the Whitney program, when I came to settle down, find my loft, start my life, become a famous waitress, in the mid-70s, what was happening in the art world was thrilling. It was the height of second wave feminism. The art world was way smaller. The most interesting work particularly painting, was being done by women. It was the intersection of New York School painting and feminism. The art that was being shown in Soho, which was kind of a new thing, was Elizabeth Murray's work, which was incredibly important to me. So was Pat Steer's work, Mary Heilman's work, um, Susan Rothenberg's work. And all of these women were really talking about abstraction and representation at the same time. But more what was interesting to me was how they were injecting their own personal point of view or – I'm not saying this well. But after all those years at MoMA, not understanding what any of it might have to do with me basically. I wasn't necessarily the audience. I didn't feel like the subject. These particular women's work, paintings, were the first time I felt like I was the intended audience of a piece of work. And they were abstract paintings. So I don't know how that was communicated, but it was communicated extremely strongly to me, who was sort of already obsessed with post-war painting because of all of my time at MoMA. And you can understand why, if I loved Frank Stella, Elizabeth Murray would be a huge revelation. And I said to Elizabeth once, I said, you know, you ruined abstraction. (laughs) And she said, what what do you mean? And I said, well, before you, it was universal. Once it was you, it became specific. And that was a really
2: big change. I I felt felt the same way when I looked at her her first, the the big giant... Yeah, canvases all right. out of proportion and shape. And, yeah. I mean, it's incredible.
1: And Pat's work, the fact that she broke picture-making down into these parts. Now, Jasper Johns had done it, but it felt different. It just felt different. I don't know, something about seeing a little bird on a grid felt different. Um, Mary Hommin's relationship to the edge in those paintings and the casualness – Only Mary would make a mark in that way, but it was still an abstract painting. Joan Snyder I put into this category too. Making operatic operas with that work.
2: How did that influence the kind of work you were doing at that time?
1: I'm not sure it influenced me specifically in terms... It's like Frank... I never made a Frank Stella painting except when I use Frank Stella. But it, it was never to me about well then I'll make a piece of I'll make a piece of work like that it's more what it meant philosophically or what it could mean
2: what it opened up in you
1: what it opened well what it what it opens up period and where you can go with that information so then I go back to the early late 70s early 80s when neo expressionism happened which also happened along with Ronald Reagan But in that particular group of artists, you had to be a white man. There were simply no women my age who got any traction for being painters. Women my generation got traction by being on the outskirts of the then very new and exciting market following closely to Ronald Reagan's reign. And the people who are taking a critical doing sort of critical work in relationship to the culture and representation. Us painters called them the photo girls. Hmm. And it was Laurie Simmons and Sarah Charlesworth and Cindy Sherman and Louise Lawler and Barbara Kruger and Sherry Levine. And what I'm getting at here is it was the content of that work that weirdly in my head connected to what these women had done painting – in the 70s, breaking open a system like abstraction and figuring out new ways in and new subjectivities, somehow getting them in there, and here were all these women doing critiques of photography and media and inserting their subjectivity in and seeing what it looked like from their point of view, and that that was incredibly interesting and radical. So. The art history paintings came from a combination of those 70s women and what they'd done with the history of abstraction and post-war painting and what Barbara, Cindy, and Sherry, as I love to say, were doing in terms of sort of cultural critique and media critique and putting them together into the art history paintings, which was me looking at the history of painting in a certain way or the, certainly the one I loved and knew starting with Cezanne, you know, it's like the stuff I just loved. And um, through post-war painting, through Andy Warhol and putting that kind of critique that the photo girls were putting towards the culture, towards the history of painting.
2: Your fascination with Andy Warhol began bef- when you were about 13 And um, you saw a reproduction of his 1961 painting titled Before and After. Can you describe the painting for our listeners? He
1: reproduced in paint a widely distributed advertisement for a nose job. So it was a little kind of drawing, not his, from the advertisement of The profile of a woman with a nose, a big schnoz. Are you drawing it? Yeah, I am kind of drawing it. (laughs) And, And then after
2: the nose job. I read that you took subversive joy in that image.
1: I did because nose jobs were really important on Long Island.
2: Especially in the 70s and 80s. And
1: this was the 60s. Yeah, I so, guess that's
2: why, right? Yeah. Um, you said that your decade of Andy Warhol started in 1992 and ended in 2000, and then you began a new body of work in 2002. So let's talk about your decade of Andy Warhol. It began when you borrowed the format of Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe and Jackie Kennedy silk screens and used an image of Barbara Streisand. You titled it Jewish Jackie. Why? Why did you make this painting?
1: Well, in the art history paintings, I got up to Warhol, and I used Andy a bunch of times, including Before and Happily Ever After, Making Men, Puff Painting, to name a few. And I was there with Andy. There I was with Andy. Um, And uh, those paintings particularly were really about my absence in art history. That's what they were about. It's like, here's art history, here's how it's written, here's what's valuable, here's what's not. And I'm really missing in here, in this whole equation. And I was having a conversation with a friend. It was about the sexism in the art world, which was my, <laughs> it's my common theme. It's my theme. And I was sort of screaming, like, Jerry! You're interested in every single thing that's in the inside of a adolescent boy's head. You think it's valuable. Anything a guy does, even if it's like from when they're 13 years old. And he said, well, I'd love to know what 13-year-old girls think about. And I was fascinated. I mean, this is why you talk to your friends. And it really got me thinking. <laughs> also, at that time, it was Another contextual thing about that particular moment, late 80s, this was really the beginning of women's studies in academia and black studies and critical race theory and queer theory. This was all the beginning of what became academic 20 years later. And I was reading a lot, a lot, a lot about subjectivity and objectivity and, you know, specificity and fluidity of gender and Judith Butler and Eve Sedgwick. And um, and before then, Gober and Gilbert, The Bad Woman in the Attic, Elaine Showalter, the Pembroke series, the Columbia University Press gender and culture series Nancy K. Miller edited with Carolyn Halbrin. I mean, there was enormous enormous amounts of intellectual activity around identity. But this was the stuff that was working in Barbara, Cindy, and Sherry's work. This is what their work was really engaged with and engaging. Women's studies came out of a lot of really smart women, most of them Jewish, a lot of them Jewish. Let's just say a lot of them are Jewish, who were really good girls, older than me, Who were kind of brilliant children who became brilliant women, who did nice girl things like major and get their PhDs in French literature and English literature. And something cracked in the 70s. And then in the 80s began to re-examine their own history of their own, um, you know, topics and subjects. French literature, English literature, American literature, through the lens of feminism. And that is what I was doing with art hi- the art history paintings. I was reexamining my beloved history of art post-war painting through a lens of feminism because I was reading these women. And it looked like I re- no one had done this in painting and I really wanted to do it. And they were just starting to do it in English literature. And then it became critical race theory and black scholars looking at the law through the lens of race. So when I had that conversation with my friend and he said, I would love to know what 13-year-old girls think about, I was thinking about my work, as I always do, and, and I realized that that work had really been about my absence, that the art history paintings had been about my absence. What would my presence look like? <laughs> what would my presence look like? And then he said that thing about being 13. And those two things just, you know, exploded in my brain. And what I was thinking about at 13 looked a lot like Barbara Streisand.
2: Yeah, I, I, I actually read that um, you, you talked about how Barbara Streisand changed your life as a Jewish girl growing up in suburban New York and stated that her sense of herself, her ethnicity, glamour and her difference affirmed your own ambitions and identity. And she did the same exact thing for me exact thing for me.
1: That is the power of being Barbara.
2: Absolutely.
1: And, you know, I was really obsessed with my parents' nostalgia. So my mother, my father had the music thing, which was major. And my mother was a great reader and a great movie person, like those gals were. They love the movies, the 30s, the 40s. Oh, are you the kidding 50s. when my mother
2: told me that she and my father were getting a divorce, she took us to see Hello Dolly starring Barbara Streisand. Oh god. I mean, seriously, could you now you understand my <laughs> fascination with Barbara? But in any case, you were saying. That's like
1: Rosie O'Donnell's story when her father died. No, her mother died. Her father threw out everything her mother owned. Oh my god. And she hid Funny Girl, the album. And that's what Barbara means to her. Yeah, of course. Okay. That was her last piece of her mother. Yeah. Well, so having been obsessed with my parents' nostalgia and movies, and, you know, I knew everything about Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, and my mother would talk endlessly, and, you know, Leslie Howard was Jewish, and, and you know, Ashley Wilkes, and, you know, Rita, Hare, Rita Hayworth's electrolysis on her hairline. I mean, she knew it all. She knew it She was great. And um, you know, I, I think I had a whole theory when I was probably fourteen, about nineteen thirty nine being the best year move, of movies ever. In, of course, and yeah. it, it still is to this day. Well, what, how, I mean, what? The, 13 the Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind. I mean, please, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and uh, and Wuthering Heights. I mean, it was an amazing. Yeah, but like never for, to be repeated for a thirteen or fourteen year old to know this was like. I mean, really, I was a gay boy.
2: Oh, I—that's I, so funny that you should say that. I—I I often say that about myself. <laughs> yes, I was hundred percent. i be a much
1: better gay man. I—I <laughs> am, and I mean I have to. That's a part of my work that's been under—under under, uh, theorized. Anyway, um, so Barbara was so obviously different than any other of these movie stars. Oh, I was completely in love with Marilyn Monroe. I just adored her. I adored Jane Russell. I adored Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was like my favorite. I mean, you knew that by heart. By heart. And it was very clear when Barbara showed up that she was different than any woman who'd ever been a movie star. She looked like people I knew. Now, <laughs> she looked like people I knew. She looked like a New Yorker. She looked like a Jewish girl.
2: Is it true that Barbara Streisand declined an offer from Warhol to sit for a painting?
1: That's the story. I know the same story. So that is my understanding.
2: But we don't know for sure.
1: But Barbara wouldn't, because Barbara controlled her own image. Right. And I have to tell you, when I was painting my celebrity portraits, and I would ask Barbara Kruger, my heroes, you know, I asked some of my heroes.
2: You know, and she well, you did do- Elizabeth Murray and Pet Steer.
1: Yes, but they said yes, and Barbara Kruger said no, because uh-huh. Barbara Kruger controls her own image, and uh, you know it's it's not as crucial to Barbara Kruger as it is to Barbara Streisand. But Barbara Streisand did a damn good job of controlling that oh, image, yeah, absolutely. So I my guess is she didn't want someone else painting her when she's too busy creating
2: herself. You also painted portraits of yourself impersonating both Warhol and Elizabeth Taylor in a series you called The Debs. Don't think I don't want one of those. What was it like inhabiting somebody else's spirit in in that way?
1: Oh, it was great. It was like the best marriage. And I, I, I always feel really grateful that I got to be... I got to partner with Andy for as long as I did. I learned so much stuff about making things and ideas and making ideas multiply, literally and figuratively. And um, it was just the best
2: partnership. Do you think that—I mean, we talked a little—we touched a little bit on women's roles or a woman's role in the art world. Do you think that women can or ever will be able to be equal in the art world? Do you think that they'll have to be granted art world equality by men? Or do you think that this is an uphill battle that will not be won in our generation?
1: The only way that that will be resolved is when women make the same amount of money as men.
2: So does that what gender equality in the art world looks like to you?
1: I mean in the big world because it's the big world that pays for the art world. I mean women need to make as much as men. Oh, in the world. In the world for enough generations that art is something they feel like investing in. And till women make a dollar to a dollar, women in the art world don't have a clue. I mean a chance. I mean I I don't see it. I I don't see how – till there's financial equality, anything is going to be equal.
2: After the um, Warhol project, your your plan was to take some time off. I think you took about a year off. When you take time off between periods of work, do you ever worry about ideas and, and having something new to say? Yeah, always. And is there any way that you manage that fear or that stress?
1: You know, I, I think every break is for a different reason in a way, but it does tend to come at the end of a series. And um, after Warhol, which I knew always knew would come to an end uh, at some point, I, I kind of don't remember exactly what happened anymore. But if you're telling me I took a break, I believe you. But I do know when I got back to work, I knew I'd... There were a couple things I just was had been thinking about a lot. And I didn't know what it would look like or what it would mean or anything and it was really still wanting to say what I always you know what I
2: what I say in a different way. Your next body of work feel good paintings for feel bad times. Um, consisted of paintings of phrases from musicals and movies as a reaction then to the Bush administration and the invasion of Iraq. Those were indeed (laughs) feel-bad times, but it's hard for me to um, imagine how the world now is affecting the kind of work that you want to be making.
1: Uh, That's a really
2: good question that I am in no way prepared to answer. What was the um, intention of using the phrases from the musicals and the movies? Was it the sense of joy that you experienced in observing those or participating in those types of art forms and wanting to bring that into the work to cheer people up, to distract them, to oh, oh create no. a sense of a dichotomy between realities?
1: Well, the whole thing was very tongue-in-cheek, and every single phrase was double-edged. Right. So, Well, it, I think
2: everything in your work is double-edged.
1: Well, I guess it is. It must be astrological. It's <laughs> Aries. It's my sun-moon opposition. Um, the, you know, I, I was turning 50, and I really wanted them to be about turning 50. And I, it was also that idea about identifying that I was playing with and— Nostalgia and sort of weaponizing nostalgia, and
2: um, they were biting. the The phrases it, were biting.
1: Yeah, and but nostalgic, <laughs> but nostalgic only if you're a person like me. <laughs> but again, that's where the specificity comes in. You know, I love musicals. I love the old musicals. I don't love the new musicals. I loved Hamilton, but my whole middle brow attachment to middle class entertainment is to me (laughs) one of the more radical things I do in art because art's supposed to be this other thing. Yet the middle class is the thing that has, it made the greatest art, it made the greatest movies, we made the greatest, a lot of great stuff. I mean, let's face it, working class, middle class, it's where the action is. But that great middle class made us. And that great middle class was the thing that was being attacked so directly by Republicans and by, by Bush in particular. And the dismantling of the middle class is one of the most tragic things that's happened in my lifetime. So to embrace this middle class stuff like musicals, it seemed... Really, like, a good idea.
2: Let's talk about oi-yo. Okay. Because it is, has so much embedded in it. Mm -hmm. Um, We, I mentioned what it looks like a little bit in my intro. So, very large, big yellow letters, O-Y. Y-O. You can look at it from two different directions. Um, you first developed the idea, I believe, uh, through paintings and smaller scale pieces that were inspired by Picasso's Yo Picasso and Edward Rouchet's OOF. How did they sort of infiltrate into your psyche?
1: Well, I was walking around MoMA, as I do still. Not as often as I did when I was a kid, though. And there was Ed Rouchet's OOF. And I just saw (laughs) oi. So I made the painting the exact same size, same color. A friend saw – it was up at the gallery and a friend saw the reflection and said, you know, it says yo in the reflection. And, you know, this is like an Andy moment where I went, should I paint it? Which is exactly what Andy would have said. And she said, yeah. So I made the yo. So I painted the yo. And then – this is a, it takes a village story. My print publisher, Robert Lococo, Lococo Fine Arts, who I adore, said, What if we made a little sculpture out of it? That way you could see it at the same time. So we did. And then this opportunity came up to do that, a large scale sculpture, and it was completely, who wouldn't want to see that eight foot tall?
2: Especially, especially in New York City. I mean, yeah.
1: So that's how it happened. It was a lot of people with a lot of good
2: ideas, and um, and a great opportunity. I think it's a modern day version of the I Heart New York logo. Uh, you know, I, that and love. Yes, Indiana, Robert Indiana. I absolutely. mean, it, it is
1: it is totally those two things combined with Tony Smith.
2: Yes, absolutely. And
1: you know, it's sort of it, when it went up. I, I, you know, when it when it was installed, I knew it.
2: Is it going to become a permanent part of the New York City landscape?
1: Well, one can hope. You know, there's a lot of conversations going on. Hopefully there will eventually be a great New York City spot for it to stay permanently. It has to. It, it really was a remarkable experience. And
2: it's such a mashup of the culture of this city, this sort of wonderful melting pot that still does exist and, and should be expressed in, in this way.
1: I, I mean, I'm still shocked by it. It's not like I planned for it to be an instant icon.
2: Yeah. But Char- even
1: I knew it was the minute it was installed. Yeah. It was just so obvious and... That's what happens when you have opportunity, which is the thing that is lacking to specific groups of people that, you know, this is an example of you give. There's not a lot of public art by women and there's virtually no permanent public art by women.
2: Well, hopefully this is going to change
1: and, and you help, know, help move that. Thank you. I hope so. But, you know, given that opportunity, it just worked out really well. And it was so much more than I ever
2: thought about, you know. Charles Schultz would be proud. He would be proud, yeah. I have a final question for you. You've had a remarkable career. You've had extraordinary longevity. There are a number of artists today, but not many, that you can look at the trajectory of their work and feel like they— haven't even peaked yet. You know, you, they're, they're doing the best work of their career. And I, I think that you're an artist in that category that's just continually doing things that are, are really important and making a, a really important contribution and statement. Um, in a recent interview, you were asked if you had any advice for young artists today. And your response was classic Deborah Cass. You said, don't be an asshole. And why that advice? I mean, aside from the obvious, why, why that specific advice?
1: I guess because at this point in my life, I know more about human nature. And I know that people don't forgive and they don't forget. And
2: that's why you should mind your P's and Q's. Deborah Cass, thank you for making our world and our city a more painterly and provocative place. You can see some of Deborah Cass's work on DeborahCass.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMillman.com. If you like the podcast, please write a review on iTunes and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is recorded at the Masters and Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. She's here to talk
2: about her long and extraordinary career. Deborah Cass. welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs>
2: you should say Yo.
1: You should put that in. (laughs) This should be it.